0: A haunting, artfully understated critique of American gun culture, Tim Sutton's third feature is loosely based around the 2012 massacre in Aurora, Colorado that took place during a multiplex screening of The Dark Knight Rises, employing a documentary-style technique and a cast of non-professional actors. Dark Knight follows the activities of six strangers over the course of one day. The shooter among them, shot by veteran French Uh, Director of Photography, and that would be Helene Lovart. She also did the uh, documentary Pina. Dark Knight is an essential viewing, not only for art house filmgoers, but anyone invested in the debate over gun violence in America as well. We're joined today by the director of Dark Knight. That would be Tim Sutton. Tim, welcome to Film School. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Thank you. Uh, I I mean, let's start with the obvious question, uh, sort of the material, because it is inspired by uh, real-life events. How would you characterize the inspiration for the film?
1: Well, the nucleus of the film obviously comes from Aurora and the, the Dark Knight Rises massacre. And, you know, when, when that happened, you know, like every, like most Americans, I was horrified for the, the people inside that theater and the, the their families and, and, and everyone who was affected by the actual gun violence. At the same time, as a filmmaker and as a moviegoer, it had felt—it also felt like a, a a corruption of this this place, this theater, where people go to to safely dream in, in a collective sense. Mm-hmm. So it felt like a a death of cinema in the same in the same time as as a loss of human life. And um, when when James Holmes walked out there and threw tear gas and. And right before he shot those people, uh, the audience applauded because they thought it was some kind of event put on by the studio. So th- it just felt like a very, very wicked, very American piece of performance art, and it made me think of uh, you know when Gus Van Sant made a hit, uh, *Elephant* about Columbine, and what an important document I felt that was. Um, and I I felt very clearly, you know, as I thought about it that. Uh, someone had to continue that conversation that he started someone should continue to form a direct cinematic response to violence and and i knew that uh, very few people in the industry wanted to do that and at the same time i thought it made sense for me and and the film the kind of filmmaking that i that i engage in because i i wanted to make it more about people's how people spend their day rather than actual violence or actual
0: death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's one of the uh, things that I felt watching the film. First of all, as, as we, you mentioned, uh, it takes place in one day leading up to the evening of, and um, how over the course of the film there is uh, there is a sense of, I don't want to say doom is the wrong word, but there's a Dread. sense... Of, the, the dread thank you that's that 's the word of just sort of uh, in and it 's in bits and pieces of, of of the action by the characters and, and the dialogue which is very sparse in the film but you you feel it and you did a just a remarkable job of doing that without a lot of anything specific in in, in, in doing it so tell me a little bit about your approach and how you sort of ratcheted up uh, that sense of dread?
1: Sure. Well, well, I think what, what's also very key is that this is a movie that is it's very okay to, to have a sense of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. The audience comes into the movie knowing that there's a relationship to Aurora, there's a relationship to gun violence. And so while you're watching these people's lives, you're, you're deeply engaged, even in the tedium, of, of their lives, if they're just going to work or, you know, sitting around their house or going for a walk or walking their dogs or talking with a friend. It's all very simple stuff, and it's all very recognizable stuff. We see ourselves in each of the characters in, in our own way. And then as the day progresses, it, it, you get more and more aware that that they're heading towards this awful event. So by the time the sun goes down and it's night, you realize that the sun might never rise again, and it's a horrible feeling. It's an it's a isolating feeling, and it's also that, this feeling that I wanted to create. So we all kind of get the feeling that life is very fragile, mm-hmm. that people's lives, people's psyches, people's everyday existence is very fragile, and, and we forget about that. So it's really it's, it's 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 some of it is know set the setup of knowing that something bad is going to happen even though the characters don't and the other is to kind of take those little moments in everyday life that could mean nothing but in our culture right now have have grown to to create a sense of tension or dread for example there's a moment when um, teenagers scream in an empty parking lot mm-hmm. and and. It's a very, it's almost a horror film, uh, style of approach. But I did that because I think now when we walk across parking lots in these suburbs in America and you hear a loud bang and you hear a loud scream, uh, we're conditioned now because of the culture to think something horrible is happening and, and, and it's all around us. The idea that violence could be very close to us at all times. And I think that's why the movie is effective, even without a lot of plot or character arc.
0: <clears throat> I'm remind Our listeners we're speaking with Tim Sutton. He's the director of the new film, Dark Knight. I, I want to... Uh, exactly that. It, I mean, I'm watching the film, and uh, that was exactly... Well, actually, more than just watching Dark Knight. Also, over the last few years, I have found myself wondering what i would do in specific situations if if i heard something if i thought something was going on i i wouldn't say i'd do it all the time certainly not but there are times when it occurs to me that if i had to get out of a situation out of a theater out of a mall out of wherever i am that this comes into my mind now and then and um it's. It is the new. I want to say new normal because that's easy to say. It. That that's not what I mean. But it is something that not only for me particularly, but there is something about that f- true fear, uncontrolled fear of what might happen, that is having, in my opinion, having an impact on us. Not only individually, but we're making, I think, group decisions now based on that. And that's yeah, I mean, it. I. I
1: I think, I think we, our culture has become more paranoid and for good reason. I'm not, I'm not saying that I agree with it, but, you know, I worry about taking my son sometimes to a movie in a cineplex in the suburbs. Uh, I think people worry when they travel now. I, I, you know, we live, I live with my family in New York City and, uh, you know, we live through 9-11 and, and there is that sense of, um, not constant fear, like you're saying, but there's this constant sense of collective paranoia um, because it's happening. Because while we were making the film, uh, you know, multiple shoot uh, massacres happened while we were premiering the film at Sundance, and Bernardino happened while we were premiering the film in New York uh, for a uh, BAM Cinema Fest. The Pulse shootings happened in Orlando. It's this. It's it's this cycle that we're in that we've. Created one way or another over you know years and years of, of our culture, and it's very real. It's very palpable. And while people you know want often want to look to movies or, or art as an escape, um, I think I think you know e- even looking towards the Dark Knight Rises as escape, it's a it's about violence. It's about vigilantism. Uh, big action movies. The, first person shooter games these 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 entertainments that are uh, applauded and promoted by our culture are also you know creating this sense of violence as an everyday thing yeah. violence is something that's all around us
0: and and at the same time uh, as a collective group uh, we we are thwarted in any attempt to make changes to that sensibility we're, we're thwarted in our attempts to um, you know minimize the availability of guns to people who who uh, obviously shouldn't have them everything about our collective attempts to do something to mitigate the the real trouble, the real actual sense. Uh, I mean, the real issue of people with guns who either shouldn't have them or whatever is being constantly we're constantly being told that's just not practical and or that will not politically fly. Is also it's a it's a kind of a biofeedback system. It's feeding into its it, into that p- sense of dread and paranoia as well right yeah and
1: that's why i think a film like dark knight or elephant for that matter um is 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 important because it's it's but neither one are judgmental film right dark Knight is specifically devoid of politics my my personal politics are very left-wing i don't believe in guns at all Mm -hmm. um but i made the film to just show a very specific point of view uh, on a uh, you know a, a corner of the country right now to just say this is this is this is what it looks like to me. Mm-hmm. Um, this is how easy it is to get guns. But this is uh... you know a, a, a specific person who takes care of his guns and does everything legally. Uh, this is a person who does just the opposite. Um, here are innocent people who are in 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 the way of of, of that violence. It's it's. It's just showing anyone, Red State, Blue State, any kind of political band, uh, something authentic and and observational so they can make their own opinion. Yeah. They can make their own decision. And we're all, the most important thing is, at the end of the movie, we're all in that theater together. Yeah. We're all people looking up at the screen together. And and it leaves you with a feeling of, uh, I, I believe, deep sadness.
0: Yeah we're speaking with Tim Sutton
1: that's outside of that's outside of politics.
0: Yeah. You know. And and I you mentioned Elephant as a reference and um be a wonderful film uh, Gus Van Zandt's Elephant uh really one of those movies that the when I the first time I saw it um it it just it really pierced my subconscious in in terms of just very you know how films obviously you know as films can do that uh, they they stay with you in ways that uh uh, are lasting and lasting impact on your perception of things, um, right? And and this one, the in, and in Dark Knight, I, I, as you said, I think you take that conversation and and push it forward, um, and in ways that we're more personally invested in the characters of Dark Knight uh, than we mm-hmm. were in Elephant. There's a, I think, a deliberate distance between ourselves and and the, and the, uh, the uh the 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 shooters in, in in elephants and in not in your film even though and I want to talk a little bit about the decision to be very quiet with your film very little dialogue but you push right. the, even even with that you push us into a, a, a greater deeper understanding of all these people and their and in, in their lives
1: well I think we spend time with with the characters in in different environments uh elephant take pl- takes place in a specific amount of time at a school uh we can all watch but we can't all relate right whereas in, i think dark night is specifically designed to create characters that you're going to y- that you as an audience member are going to recognize whether it's maybe your cousin or your your wife's best friend or the the kid down the street um th- or yourself. I mean, you see yourself up on the screen because they're not actors, because they represent a kind of cross-section of, of, of America right now. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, they're reflections of, of audience members. And, and that, you know, when Aurora happened, I mean, those are just real people in the theater. So one of the things I wanted to make sure was that it was not exploitative of the actual people, but that it, it was authentic that it was real people we were we were identifying with because i think that's much more immersive and much harder to um to fathom at the same time yeah. um and then you know importantly leaving the theater there is no violence in this movie and you leave the theater as an audience member with the violence still inside of you with the possibility that it could still happen there's no catharsis and i think that that is um one of the hardest things about the movie, but also one of the most immersive, you leave with it still inside of you. And and that's what, you know, the goal of the film all all along is to make a deep impression so you think about it afterwards.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to step back. Well, first of all, I want to remind our listeners, speaking with Tim Sutton, the director of the film Dark Knight, and the cinematography um there's so many elements in your film that pull us into these characters as you're describing them uh the 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 score of the film is understated it's it has there's also a sense of impending something the the music feeds into a lot of what you're trying to accomplish i think with the the writing as well and this and your um uh your sound design as well i think there. are Terrific job with that But also Thank the you. Yes, with the cinematography By uh, Hel- Helen Lovart, uh, who's, as I mentioned Had also done um, The documentary Pina, but also worked With some, a- Agnes uh, Varda, just an Accomplished uh, cinematographer But yeah. your work with her Is is really An important part of the film in terms of pulling Us into these people's lives um, it would, I would say without judgment and you would mentioned earlier but that's what I would have said I mean the, the, the cinematography for me feels non-judgmental but I feel very intimate with these people as well
1: Right, well I mean she I met her through a producer because I thought it was very important to, to first of all have a, a cinematographer who who raised my game a lot um, and, and someone who was on the world stage as, you know, uh, one of the, worked with some of the great directors, Tim Benders, Agnes Varda, Larry Clark, um, Leo Karak. And, and um, at the same time, I thought it was important to have a, a, a foreign eye Mm. in Florida. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, I think, I think an outsider's point of view is very important. It's the same thing we did with Memphis. You know, Memphis, the film would have been very different if it had been shot by people from Memphis. It was very important that we were not strangers, but that we were outsiders. And I thought Helen lends uh, an, a, a, an exoticness to, to the image that hadn't been seen in, in that landscape without her eye. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at the same time, she she's she's, can do both very precise movement and, and very patient movement, and then can do verite. And, and and track along uh, people in ways that feel very fly on the wall, which is essential because when you're working with non-actors, the whole the whole idea is to not make them be actors, to not approach them in the exact same way. You have to approach them in a way that will get their best performance. So for some people, that's interview. For other people, that's verite. For other people, that's a more traditional kind of um, m- m- blocking. And you need to have a cinematographer who not only can do all that uh, with precision and with you know technical flawlessness, but but who can help decide how to how to do that with you. Um, Helen is a storyteller; she's not just a, an image maker, and I think that's very important to note. Not all cinematographers invest so deeply in the story, and it was essential that she and I could um, create these approach, each approach to each character and each different part of the landscape in a way that, that would bring out uh, an evocative form, uh, an mm. evocative uh, scene or an evocative aspect of the story. Mm. Um, I consider her one of the authors of the film. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the music is the third author of the film, and Micah Armada, who I'm, is a Montreal-based musician, someone I met in Montreal when I was writing had just written Dark Knight and was looking for financing. And I heard her music, and it really, I could see my film for the first time. And I, I think the film always needed a narrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's six different characters. It's fragmented by design. But it needed a through line. And, I, you know, I, I'm not interested in voiceover or a character being a narrator, narrator. But I thought her voice and her music could serve as, as an actual storyteller, the person who is who is dragging us through this or pulling us through this or walking hand in hand with us mm-hmm. through this. Her sound is um part mantra and part warning. And and I think it adds a level of, of deep humility and deep respect to the people in the film. It's um it's a sensitive soundtrack at the same time as it's very dark and sad. But it's it it I feel like it it um it covers the characters in a way uh, that that is
0: protective of them. Yeah, it is. It's beautiful. And I um, was not familiar with her work before. And uh, yeah, well yeah. worth checking out. In um, one other, what I consider to be critical element to the film, and I think uh, you mentioned the non-professional actors here, but Eleanor Hendricks, the casting director, did, uh, and you, uh, I read some of the, Backstory on this, and a pretty, uh, I don't know if this is an unusual way of going out and finding uh, non-professional actors, but a very interesting one. Tell us a little bit about how that happened with the casting.
1: Sure. Well, Eleanor helped cast, she cast Memphis. And before that, she had done the street casting with um, for Beast of the Southern Wild, and she most recently did street casting for American Honey. And street casting is a very different skill set than a a typical casting director. What a Leonor does is you send her down to where you're shooting, uh in our case Sarasota, you give her three weeks, you give her a car and an assistant and a little bit of money. And she just starts roaming around the city. She finds people at schools. She you know, she has certain types she's looking for, but she goes to schools and bars and the beach and the street corner and the laundromat (laughs) and wherever. And she just starts looking around, and she gathers numerous in, you know, interesting people alongside the main characters that we're looking for. But, uh, you know, she's very open and able to communicate what she's doing in a way that is attractive to, to people on the street. So, for example, she was following – she was driving around, and she was following this white vintage Mercedes that she thought was cool. And she pulled up next to the guy, and he looked over at her, and it was – he had the – Sharpest, most ice blue eyes she'd ever seen. Yeah, and so she asked him to pull over, and that, and he, you know, he turned out to be one of our main actors. And and you could say that's luck, and there is a little bit of luck involved in it. But when you're going at that kind of process, if you're not just doing a casting call and videotaping people and having a waiting room and people reading lines and sides, if you're out there on the street looking for it, then you're open to to having. You know, great discovery, yeah. and that's that's what she brings is the sense of of discovery in the sense that there are people out there who are in the film. We just have to find them.
0: Yeah, well, in a, in a sense, it's the it's the more it's the appropriate setting to find somebody for a film about people who are living their lives. Well, not on the street, but certainly in that in sort of in that environment. So it right. it really works, and and it is it's terrific. And you mentioned Robert Jumper, and there's a lot of uh, very uh, good performances in the film. Very natural, but at the same time, you were able, and I credit you as uh, a director who can pull these kind of performances out of these people. That's just, and I and I and in the film, I don't think you put them in in situations that were going to test them as actors in a sense. And I, I don't know how that sounds, but it...
1: No, it makes sense. You have to approach non-actors as they are, as,
0: yeah. as people. Yeah.
1: You can't give them a script and say, hit your mark. Yeah. You have to you have to approach them in a way that allows them to be a version of themselves. And the more that they start to feel comfortable on camera, and not everybody can do this. I certainly can't do this as an as on-camera actor. But as soon as people start to feel more comfortable... They start to free up even more, and they start really living in the camera. Yeah. So my job is to tell them what the scene is about and what the basics are. And, and we set the frame. But between action and cut, it's really up to them. Mm-hmm. And that's why you have this kind of authenticity, but also this almost living and breathing film. Memphis was like this, too, where it feels like it's not being constructed, but that it's growing. Yeah and i think that's one of the keys of, of working with non-actors is 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 letting setting it up empowering people to feel comfortable but then letting them do it
0: themselves right i love memphis it's a it's a terrific film i i, I just uh, Thank you. i like really it's just yeah I, I i love these kinds of films i got to tell you it's uh, it's it really makes what i do here with film school um feel like this is exactly these are exactly the kind of films I want to talk to talk about, talk to the people who make them because they in some way look a lot easier than they are to make and to really do well and to to find that, that sort of that, that sweet spot making a film where it's compelling – and at the same time, it feels like you could walk outside and see these people, and and you would you would you would understand. I mean, it's just it's it's so many different elements, and I I I so appreciate it. And and this is this is a, a great film as well. Um, one last thing: this is completely film geeky. I realize, but there's sure. uh, when Helen shot that the, the scene with uh, Robert walking along that chain link fence. Yeah,
1: the optical illusion.
0: Yeah, I I love that because for uh, for a few minutes first of all, it it sort of telegraphs to me that this guy is he's an important. He he may be the one. I wasn't sure, but it, it sort of tell it it just kind of gave me a, a visual cue uh for him in a way yes. that and and uh I just I just really I just want to compliment you and Helen on on that because those are the kinds of things that are just so what I'm talking about it elevates it beyond just some a bunch of guys who got together and made a movie about their buddies or something. There's there is something right. that's profoundly cinematic about it, but at the same time feels feels completely natural within the context of the film.
1: Well, I appreciate that. There's a, there's a lot we tried to put in the film that were visual uh, insights into the into the minds of the people that were that were filming yeah so whether that's jumper in the chain link fence and there's just something very fluid but also very confused and very psych psychedelic about what's going on in right. inside his head right at the same time you have uh, uh you have Rosie walking in twilight by herself, lit only by her uh by her cell phone right. and how how deeply um how deeply controlled she is by the screen. Yeah. That she looks at, yeah. um. So she's almost like being transported by the light in that phone. Yeah. So there's there's a few different cues that we tr- we worked really hard to to kind of go deeper and mm-hmm. and make make the image come alive in a way that was unique and and emotionally resonant.
0: Yeah, it's it's just a terrific film. If people want to find out more um, about uh, Dark Knight, and I now it's I know it's being distributed by uh, Cinealicious. Uh is, yes. is that the best place to go to find out uh, where screenings are and all that and that
1: kind yeah malicious of... picks okay. uh, is their site they have the whole schedule and it's, it's gonna be rolling out right now from New York ooh, San Francisco and Los Angeles into about 25 to 30 cities in the US and you know has, has is also playing internationally um, yeah. in various countries as well so yeah. Yeah. it's for a small film you know it's 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 and a small distribution company, I mean, it's really run by by passionate people who want to keep the dialogue going.
0: Well, it, it is definitely worth seeking out. Uh, you um, had mentioned that uh, people can be looking, as if it's not in theaters near them, um, first of all, you can get to the link through filmschoolradio.com. that will take you to the Cinelicious site, but also be looking for the film, uh, for VOD or uh, whenever it'll it'll be sometime you mentioned somewhere around. May. I
1: believe the, it'll be VOD on in May, May. iTunes, yeah. and, and uh, I'm not sure if it's Amazon or Netflix, but yeah. it'll be one of those.
0: Okay, well, wow! Just uh, congratulations um, on the film Dark Knight, and continue your your amazing film. Sensibility and the films that, that subjects you choose to uh, showcase. Willis Willis Earl Beale, uh, what a wonderful character he was in Memphis, and uh, yeah. it, just terrific stuff. So, uh, Tim Sutton, thank you so much for being here on Film School.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I, I really
0: enjoyed myself. Thank you.